This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello there. We got a lot to go through on this program. Two special guests. I'm going to start right out with our first guest. He is State Representative Peter Lucido from Macomb County, and he has just been elected to the state Senate. He will take his seat in the Senate in January, but right now he's in the middle of what they call a lame duck session of the legislature, which is the period between the election, which was November 6th and the end of the year. And they consider a lot of legislation, some of it uh, very controversial. But I want to ask Representative Lucido about uh, an issue and bills that are very near and dear to his heart involving what is called civil asset forfeiture. Now, what the heck is that? Uh, Representative Lucido, welcome to the program. Good morning, Bill, and good morning to the listeners. Yeah, civil asset forfeiture. Everything you wanted to know, but we're afraid to ask. Uh, (laughs) Being a practicing attorney for over 30 years, I've had the distinct privilege to be in a courtroom regarding two phases of most proceedings. One is a criminal aspect where its punishment is including but not limited to jail. And then there's the civil asset forfeiture. It's like uh, we don't want any criminals to profit from wrongdoing. So what the police do is they go on in and they take property, money, any type of assets, including a house, a bank account. And if they claim by way of just their own, maybe it's their, their 11th cent, that this could be an instrumentality of a crime or as a result of criminal activity without even charging, without even charging or having charges brought, they can take property and they can go ahead and sell it and they can claim the assets or the proceeds therefrom, which is wrong, absolutely wrong uh, as a lawyer. Uh, number one, property rights are a right, and as a constitutionalist, I do believe that forfeiting property of individuals never charged with a crime is just outright unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment because it just is a taking, and it may violate the Fourth Amendment of due process. So recently, the Slate.com, uh, both Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor, both came out swinging, and I mean swinging, saying this is policing for profit, this is the cops profiting from this, as well as legalized theft. They said our, our country is, is, is having billions of dollars by both federal and state law enforcement. They're paying billions of dollars from innocent or never-charged citizens, which is an absolute travesty. And if you're not even going to charge somebody, let alone convict them, and my, my bill that's sitting there in the Senate waiting, just waiting to get out of there and get on that Senate floor to dance on out there to get to the governor is, you don't have any right, number one, to take the property. But if you do, do not sell my property and get rid of it until after you convict me. Why? I'm innocent until proven guilty, and no one has the right to tell me otherwise. That's our system. It's the hallmark of our system. It's the bedrock. And let's not do this anymore. Okay. Now, as I understand it, you've gotten your legislation through the house long since it's sitting over in a Senate committee, Senate judiciary committee chaired by Senator Rick Jones, and he will not take the bill up. Uh, and time is running out. I mean, you're going to be out of session at the end of the year. The bill will die. 
yeah. if you don't get it through. Now, the other thing I'm just going to mention, and you, I want you to address the whole package here, is Senator Jones claims uh, that prosecutors and judges don't like your bill. There are some things in your bill that they don't like, and they like better a bill, another bill, uh, sponsored by Representative Runestead, who is your colleague in the House now, but like you, has been elected to the Senate, will take his seat in the Senate in January with you. And I read just this week that the House committee reported out Representative Runestead's bill, and I just can't figure out how they think they can get this all the way through the legislature between now and the end of the year, particularly with your bill sitting over in Senator Jones' committee. What's going on here? Will you explain I'll tell you this? What, I would, you know what? There's chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. They used to call it Neapolitan ice cream when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. My, my bill is doing something totally unique and different than Representative Runstead and Representative Glenn, who also has a bill. Representative Glenn's bill is an educational bill. It's telling the police, you need to get educated on why and should and, and, and how you should be taking property and what constitutes criminal activity or instrumentality of a crime. Hey, that's no problem. If they want to have that as, as an education bill to educate the police on what they should and should not do, I'm all for it. Representative Runstead bill is taking a, like we do with warrants, going to the prosecutor and asking the prosecutor, should we take the property or should we not? I got to be honest with you. If we have all this police training, I'm going to go ahead and try to nix the budget because a police officers know what's right and what's wrong. I mean, it should be in a whether or not if I don't find anything of a crime and I take people's property and I'm profiting from this, there's a there's a there's a there's a very sick sense of saying we're going ahead and creating a society where police officers should be not trusted ever again. Why? They're touching the property, the goods, the hard-earned money of citizens that have never been charged. And my bill is distinctly different for this reason. If you're a police officer, go ahead and take the property if it's part of criminal activity. You have that right. It's called your manual. And I've read a lot of your training manuals when questioning officers on the stand for over 30 years. If you believe that you've made a mistake, you have the right to give it back. Evidence that was taken from people is given given back. But here's the best part. The statute says that there's 20-day window period in which they have to bring a civil asset forfeiture proceeding. And that proceeding is still by statute. It's different and distinct from criminal activity. My bill is just this. You don't have the right to dispose of that property unless and until there's been a criminal conviction. And i got to tell you, Bill, if anybody wants to challenge the common sense of this, I suggest that they go see somebody who does something regarding the mine, because it is so clear-cut, it came out of the house overwhelmingly, and the police officers gave no, I repeat, they gave no authority or opinion as to why they have the right to do this, other than they do, do, do. And that's not what law is about. We meaning when the when, when when the chairman took up a proceeding and hearing, the members of the committee said, Why do you believe you have the right to dispose of the property? And they said, Because we can and we do. Is that the answer we want as citizens of this state? This state is on tilt as a result of this kind of law. It is unfair, it's unjust. There was millions of dollars brought into the state, eighteen point five million dollars seized and, and sold off. 
and there was 900 that were never even charged with a crime and lost their money and property. Wrong. My bill is different. This is a cowardly way out by the senator, and he should take up the bill and let it get out of committee because the citizens need this reprieve and relief. Well, can you see Representative Runestead's bill passing the House, being sent over to the Senate to maybe Senator Jones's Judiciary Committee? Both bills are there, yours and Runestead's. What do you think might happen then? Might the Senate decide, you know, let's uh, split the baby here? Uh, you know, Lucido looks a little bit too aggressive in his approach. Let's take Runestead as a compromise and try and pass that. I'm just asking, what do you think might happen? Then we're going to have the prosecutors come and say they need more money for funding because of the fact that they need to now go ahead and identify each and every complaint of whether or not the police should be taking the property. You're talking about thousands of cases here, and I have heard no evidence about whether or not there's an additional cost with this. Let me tell you why, Bill. One's a civil proceeding. So I didn't know our, 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 our prosecutors are going to get into the civil business, Okay. The criminal proceeding is the people of the, of the state of Michigan, the people of the state of Michigan are being protected by prosecutors, whether it be state or the attorney general's office or the county. I'm letting you know now, now that if I was in that committee and I had the right to speak, I would have said, is there a cost associated with the prosecutors now having to go through each and every time? And what's the penalty if a police officer does take the property and then runs to the prosecutor's office and says, can I take the property? Is it just giving back the property? Okay, we're going to have to get out. We're going to have to get out right now. Quick break, but we're going to come back in a minute with Representative Peter Lucido. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MDN. Here's Bill. We're back with Representative Peter Lucido, Republican of Macomb County. We've been talking about civil asset forfeiture. We could go on talking about this forever. And it's a fascinating subject. And uh, I'm sympathetic with Representative Lucido's point of view on this. A lot of controversy surrounding this issue. But there are other things going on in this lame duck session. I want to ask uh, Representative Lucido about another one in which he's intimately involved. And that's something called raise the age. Now, what does that mean, Representative Lucido? Right now in Michigan, Bill, uh, we have laws that pertain to juveniles and adults, and they split the age and said any crimes that are committed before 17th birthday, then you're going to be charged as a juvenile unless the prosecutor waives you, which means they believe that this crime was so heinous and so destructive and so, uh, so egregious against the society that they waive and they try an individual who's a juvenile as an adult. Raise the age is a bill that says we are not going to charge any more people that are 18, uh, 17, sorry, 17, 17 years of age with an adult crime, which means we're one of the few states, there's less than, less than a handful of states that are charging 17-year-olds as adults. And as a result, um, we are finding that we're putting 17-year-olds in jail with career criminals. It's like putting a guppy in a shark tank. And the, the worst part is it's costing society more money because socially the brain isn't fully developed. And as such, when you go in behind bars with somebody who is a career criminal, you're going to learn more and you're going to fashion your lifestyle and your ways not to be rehabilitated but to be a better criminal. 
So as a former probation officer and parole officer in the juvenile system and in the adult system, I want everybody to realize that since we are a minority state, we have to look at you can't serve on a jury until you're 18 years of age. You can't vote until you're 18. You can't buy cigarettes until you're 18. We all know that psychologists and psychiatrists that the brain isn't fully developed and appreciate the criminality of a crime until, you know, you're into the late 20s because your brain isn't fully developed. I will tell you this. It serves no purpose to be charging 17-year-olds with adult crimes and having it stick on their record so that they can never get a job and it will prohibit them from making a living and put us as taxpayers more uh, behind the eight ball. So raising the age is just saying we're going to start charging 18-year-olds with adult crimes. Anybody who's 17 will be charged with a juvenile crime. And we never gave up the right, never gave up the right of the prosecutors waiving anyone, even the 12-year-olds, to try them as an adult. There's what's called uh, the ability to go ahead and be subjective with each and every case on a case-by-case basis, which the legal system must do. Representative, that's a compelling argument. Uh, There is some concern that by doing this, basically pushing the age from, you know, beginning of your 17th birthday to the beginning of your 18th birthday, uh, that you're going to be throwing 17-year-olds into the juvenile justice system with 12 years old. Uh, now, what about that? Yeah, well, I got statistical data from each and every county that says that you have juvenile facilities that you can go ahead and it's easier to segregate a 17-year-old who's maybe, maybe, maybe violent. And you're supposed to take that safe harbor anyways, which is the best way to do it. They claim in the adult system, if you're putting them in the county jail, to house an individual at 17 until they're tried and convicted and have to go to prison, that there is no real way of doing segregation. And it's costing the sheriff's department a lot more money and time to safe harbor. So I guess the the root of it is, if they're charged at 17, let's see what they're charged with to begin with. If it's petty theft, if it's... uh, larceny, those kind of crimes that are uh, taking property, okay, and nonviolent, let's repeat, nonviolent, then we can do this innately with the juvenile system because there's less juveniles in these facilities than our adult population that's costing these taxpayers over a billion dollars a year to warehouse criminals. Okay, so where are these bills right now? You think they're, they're out of committee? Are they going to be on the floor? Have you voted in the House? What's going to happen in the Senate? You know, Bill, this is the second shot at this since I've been there. I got elected in 14, took office in 15. Those bills passed the House last time. There's some tweaks and modifications that the county wanted because they wanted to make sure that if there was a funding problem, they wanted to make it a mechanism to see. Because like anything else, you float a balloon, you don't know how high it might go or you don't know how low it might go. So there had to be a funding mechanism just in case the counties were short-funded, that there would be a few bucks put in in the onset, and we'll see how we go from there. Because we know, as citizens of this state, how many 17-year-olds are charged. We know that already. We've got statistical data. We just don't know the, the uh, cost, if there's going to be any additional. And I don't want a money grab for these counties. That's not going to happen here. You're not going to take more money because you can. You're going to take it because you're going to show us that there is an innate cost of doing this. And as a result, if I don't have a 17-year-old with a long-term criminal history, I might be able to employ that individual, make them productive, and guess what? Bring them back into society as a better person, making a mistake instead of having them a career criminal. Representative, beside the Senate, there's another actor in this drama, both on civic asset forfeiture and also raise the age, and that's the governor. Do you have some 
understanding or feeling that Governor Snyder would sign legislation in both these areas if he gets bills between now and the end of the year? I think he would for the following reason. It's common sense, both of them, legislation that'll protect and provide a cost savings to society. And here's why. It makes the police job in regards to civil asset forfeiture. You trust police more by not taking your property. You trust police less. On top of it, raising the age, you're giving exactly what the governor wants. He wants people out of jail with nonviolent, nonviolent behavior that don't have a high recidivism rate to get back in the job market instead of stigmatize. This is a jailbird. We're not giving them a job. This is what the whole process is of the governor's. And the initiative is well taken. And I applaud the governor on that initiative. Representative Peter Lucido, let me uh, ask you about a couple of other issues uh, up in lame duck. And that is the attempt over on the Senate side. I mean, I haven't really heard anything about House activity on this uh, to amend these two initiated laws enacted by the legislature back in September that would uh, raise the minimum wage and also provide for earned sick leave. They could have gone on the ballot November 6th, but the legislature chose to enact them into law instead so that the people never had a chance to vote on them. Uh, there's arguments out there. Polling showed that they would have passed if they had been uh, brought before the voters, but the voters never got a crack at them. The legislature acted and uh, we running out of time. We've only got a minute, but uh, now the legislature is trying to change the law that it just enacted three months ago. And a lot of people are crying foul and saying the legislature should keep their hands off. What do you think? That's a long, deep dive. And I can tell you this, the legislature's vote was to take it off the ballot the way it was, because it didn't make any sense. And the stakeholders were going to get harmed, including citizens of the state that pay taxes and buy goods and services by these individuals that get the hourly rate and the tip. So here's what I think. I think that the right thing was done taking it off the ballot because sometimes ballot initiatives may cost the citizens more money. And you, you didn't get a chance to hear that argument when you have a ballot initiative. That being said, since it's off the ballot already, the second phase is that a legislature, as you well know, Bill, and the listeners can hear, they have the right to change the law anytime they want if to see if it's in the best interest of society and the best interest to serve the public here at the state. Okay, boy, I wish we could keep talking. Uh, Representative Lucido, we got to get you back on the program. Uh, maybe when you take your seat in the Senate and you look around and say, where the hell am I anyway, you know? <laughs> so thank you very much, Representative Peter Lucido. You are welcome, Bill, and all your listeners and yourself. Have a great weekend. Enjoy yourself. Same to you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back with another special guest, and he is the former treasurer of the state of Michigan in the second term of former Governor Jennifer Granholm. He is Robert J. Klein, Bob Klein. Welcome to The Political Insider. Oh, thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be here. And, uh, Bob, um, I'll just say to our listeners, not only were you state treasurer, but you know, you have, uh, developed a consulting firm called great lakes, economic consulting LLC that you do with Mitch Bean, a former house fiscal agency director and 
I think most recently uh, you were director of the Michigan State University Center for Local Government and Finance and Policy. You did that for 18 months, and I think you just stepped away from that. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, look, yeah, I, I, I just Mitch, let – go ahead. I was just – Mitch and I, we've been doing you know consulting since about 2011. Right, absolutely. Well, let, let me ask you um, – as one of the foremost uh, observers of the state of the state's economy um, and what that means for uh, revenue flow into the uh, state of Michigan uh, coffers uh, over which you used to preside as director mm -hmm. of the Department of Treasury, uh, the state budget, um, what does all this look like to you right now and going forward? Well, you know, in terms of the economy, uh, you know, the economy is, is still pretty strong. I think, you know, there's some signs of a slowdown. Uh, you know, employment growth is slowing somewhat at Michigan. Um, auto sales have kind of leveled off. Um, you know, they peaked, uh, auto sales peaked at 17.5 million units in 2016, and now they're somewhere around 17 million, which is still an awful, awful good level. So, um, you know, the economy is still pretty strong. I mean, now, you know, everyone's kind of talking about when, when's the next recession going to be. Uh, you know, we know we're going to have another recession. Uh, uh, this recovery has lasted now for 114 months, and the, the record is, is 120 months uh, in the, back in the 90s. So by next June, you know, we, we will have tied the record for the longest recovery ever. So, I, you know, I, I, I do think there's a maybe a 50% chance or so that we could have a, a recession in the, the next uh next two years um and but you know even with even with a strong economy though of course the michigan budget is, is still under a lot of pressure um you know general fund spending isn't any higher than it was in 2000 and since that time you know, inflation's up a 40 percent so uh, you know and, and the projections from the uh, uh consensus revenue estimate uh, estimating conferences like a, i think a half percent decline in 2019 and a, about a 1% increase in 2020. Um, although, you know, we did have, I think, it looks like revenue for 2018 is going to be about $450 million more than was, was projected. So, you know, the, the new governor is going to have a lot of challenges. I mean, there's a lot of things she wants to do, but, you know, the budgets are going to be pretty tight, so it's going to be tough. Let me ask, uh, you mentioned... Um talking about the economy in Michigan, auto sales, and obviously that's always the bellwether in Michigan, the automobile right. capital of the world. But let me ask you, we've had such debate over such a long period of time about diversifying Michigan's economy and not being so reliant on the auto industry. Have you seen that really happen in the last uh, 10 or 20 years? And does it look like going forward, we're not maybe necessarily going to be so dependent on the auto industry, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, we, we have become more diversified, you know, unintentionally. I mean, you, you know, in, in 2000, we had 350,000 auto workers. Now we have about 175,000, 180,000. So, I mean, as a percent of the economy, it, it's, it's a lot less. That's because, you know, Michigan uh, has lost market share compared to where they were you know, 15 years ago or so. So, no, I, I, I haven't seen that much intentional diverse, uh, diversification. You know, there's been some. Um, but it's, it's kind of it's kind of a, a mixed bag. I mean, uh, I think we do need more diversification, but we also want the auto 
sector to remain strong. What about um, the pressure on the state budget that you mentioned? Um, even with the economy as robust as it is, um, you say there's a lot of pressure on the state budget. Where is that pressure really coming from with all this money coming in? As you said, I think in the current fiscal year, there's 300 million plus uh, extra revenue that was not uh, estimated or calculated maybe a year or two ago. So things yeah, are about 400, yeah, 450 okay, million, 450 million. And that's even more. So yeah. more money is coming in than, than was estimated. And yet you say there's these pressures. What are the pressures and what, why should the state not be just uh, fat and happy that, you know, they're getting all this extra money and they've got more than they actually budgeted for? Well, I mean, well, a couple, a couple reasons. Uh, one is, that, as, as I pointed out before, that, that, that despite that, uh, you know, the state revenues, general fund revenues are, are, are no higher than they were in 2000. And, you know, inflation's gone up 40%. So, and, and of course, we've had substantial tax cuts uh, over the over the last decade or so. Um, if you look at our, our, our taxes as a percent of, of personal income, it's dropped from about 7 8 8% to down, I think, 6.3%. Um, so, um, you know, we've, we've cut taxes. The economy was, you know, very slow for about 10 years. So we have a lot of needs that haven't been met over the last years, and I mean, in, any new revenue that comes in is just kind of catching up. And we've we've neglected so many areas, as you know, infrastructure, schools, uh, local governments. So um, we're not really fat and happy. Right. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, no, ab- I understand. That's why I wanted to get you to answer the question. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, in other words. Um, inflation, as you say, is up 40% since the year 2000. So there are extra costs. Um, what should, in your estimation, what should the legislature be doing? If you were governor, Bob Klein, instead of (laughs) former state treasurer or great lakes consulting guru, what would you do? What would you project going forward that let's say Gretchen Whitmer should propose in January? Well, I think, uh, uh, the first thing, um, and maybe it's because I work in this area quite a bit. Is, is, is local government? I would, I would try to restore revenue sharing. You know, revenue sharing is uh, adjusted for you know inflation is down about fifty percent from from two thousand. Um, it, it's like six hundred million below what it should be if if the formula is fully funded. So I, I would definitely try to restore that. You couldn't do it all in one year, of course, but over several years. Um, I think I'd also um, I'd also Try and, and uh, re- increase higher ed funding. You know, it used to be that 70% of funding came from the state, and you know, 30% from from the universities. Now it's almost reversed, and uh, it's resulted in very high tuition. We have the sixth highest tuition in the country, and you know, it's you know causing students to take on all this additional debt, uh, which is a big burden. Um, I, I think also um, there would I probably want to make some tax changes. As you know, you know, we reduced the earned income tax credit from 20% to 6% in order to, you know, provide business tax relief. I try and get that back up, uh, you know, to 20% over over several years. And um, I think 
those are some of the main, there are a number of other things. I mean, of course, you got to do something about the roads and infrastructure and so forth. But those are kind of the things I would probably uh, concentrate on first. What about the rainy day fund, the budget stabilization fund? I think it's up around a billion now, built back up from almost nothing when yes. uh, Governor yes. Snyder took over in 2011. Uh, how important is that? And going forward, can it be expected uh, that the state can avoid having to dip into that too much? Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to have that much money. Uh, but, you know, in... In 2000, we had, uh, 2000, 2001, we had $1.2 billion in the budget stabilization fund. And then, then we had, you know, the recession uh, in 2000, 2001. And it, by the time Granholm took office, it was all gone. Right. So, we got we to gotta um, get out now, uh, but we're going to come back. We're going to come back with Bob Klein in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, talk about local government finance, which is really important. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with our special guest. He is former state treasurer Bob Klein, now a partner with Great Lakes Economic Consulting. He is an economic guru. And, uh, Bob, I unfortunately had to cut you off there, uh, but complete your thought uh, that you were uh, making at the time uh, we had to take a break. Oh, we were talking about the uh, the budget stabilization fund. Um, uh, you know, we have a billion in the fund. As I pointed out, we had a billion two in two thousand one, and it was all gone in, in about a year or so because of the recession. So a billion is not as much as it sounds like. And uh, if we do have another recession, uh, you may, you, we may need to use it up, you know, very quickly. And of course, it's it's great to have a, a cushion like that. It, will, it certainly will help. Um, but you know. To get through a, a, a you know a, a severe recession, we need a lot more than that. But you know, hopefully, the next recession won't be nearly as bad as the, the last recession. Well, what about maybe building it up bigger, making it two or three billion? Uh, but if you do that, well, then you can't spend uh, it on all these other things you think are important. Uh, that's right. I don't think politically you'd be able to do that. I mean, first of all, that there would be a lot of pressure for for tax cuts for one thing, and also I think there's so many other needs. Uh, I, I just don't think it would be a very good idea to try to build it up that much. But what I think a, you should, you should, you know, there's a formula uh, based on on the change in real personal income. So, you, you know, you should fund it as, as much as you can every year. But I think other things should, at this point, should have higher priority because they've been neglected for too long. Right. Well, now, you touched on local government finance in our first uh, segment. I'd like you to continue to talk about that because... You know, the local governments in this state are constantly complaining with reason that there are mandates imposed on them by the state and revenue sharing has been cut um, over the years. You have already indicated that ought to be restored. That would be one of your top priorities if you were Governor Bob Klein. And uh, I, I just like to ask you, how do you look at that whole situation with local government finance? Well, um, I think one of the biggest problems is that you know, we have more restrictions on the, the ability of local governments to raise revenue than almost any other state. Uh, you know, the Headley Rollback uh, uh, Amendment from 1990, or excuse me, from 1978, and then 
proposal proposal A put a, a cap on on increases in taxable value. You know, one thing that's kind of amazing is that cities, you know, from 2008 to 2012, their taxable value declined about 18%. And since 2012, you know, which was the low point, even though the economy has been strong, the taxable value of cities has gone up only eight-tenths of 1%. And so they're still, they're still down like 17% from where they were in 2008. And, you know, inflation since then has been about 13%. So in real terms, the property tax for cities is down about 30%. Um, townships have done okay. You know, they, they've increased about 10 Their tax away has increased about 10% uh, since uh, 2012. But when you combine, you know, the, the, the property taxes, that no longer seems to be a viable revenue source for most cities with the cuts in revenue sharing, They've just been put in an untenable position. And as you mentioned, that you know the state requires certain mandates and so forth. So um, I think the state has done a real disservice to local governments. And, uh, something really needs to be done. Yeah, what about the percentage of the state budget that goes to revenue sharing? I mean, back, let's say, 50 years ago, uh, what was that percentage roughly, if you can calculate it, and what is it now? Um, well, if you, it was probably, if, you, if you're looking at the general fund, it, that, it, it doesn't all come out of the general fund, though. That, um, but it was probably, it might have been, if you took the general fund and, 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 uh, and revenue sharing together, uh, it might have been maybe 15% or so, and now it's, it's certainly uh, under 10%. Right. Well, and, and a couple of things, let me just... Uh, bring up, and you can address this too, this whole idea of emergency managers where the state basically says to local units of government that are financially troubled or maybe really in deep uh, Mm doo-doo, we, the state, are going to come in and uh, take over and run things for you and get your books in order. Um, What about that? And, you know, if the state on the one hand is suppressing local government's ability to raise revenue, won't let them do it, and then right. turns around on the other hand and says, hey, <laughs> you guys can't can't get your fiscal house in order. We're coming in and taking over. I mean, there's something wrong with that picture, isn't there? Uh, you know, it's pretty ironic, yes, yes. I mean, the state you know, largely created the problem, and, and then they punished the, the local governments for it. So, I mean, you know, there's been a, a, a lot of controversy about the emergency manager law. Um, you know, when I was treasurer, we kind of used it judiciously. We, we never, you know, unless it was requested, you know, by a, a local official for us to come in, you know, we, we kind of kept hands off. I mean, you have to have some kind of tool to, to help deal with local governments. But basically what we do is we come in and cut the budget, and, and, and local governments, they can't really provide a decent level of, of services. Um, and then, you know, Three four years later, and they're back in the same situation because they have no resources. You know, I I, I did a report when I worked at the Center for Local Government Finance and Policy um, about it's called serving serving services, you know, the ability of local government to provide a, a reasonable level of public services, and identified you know a, num- a number of our cities, uh, even if their budgets are balanced, their resources are so low, they cannot provide a reasonable level of public services. 
which, you know, that, that can cause people to, to leave the city as much as high tax. Right. So, you know, I mean, what, that's one reason why you need a strong revenue sharing program. Right. One of the things that I think is heartening, uh, you might say, uh, for people living in local units of government, whether they're cities or townships, is that it seems to me, you, you tell me if I'm wrong or how you read it, that in these uh, millage proposals that have been put on the ballot in the last several years, uh, whether they're for roads or school buildings or whatever they might be at the local level, it's amazing what a high percentage of them are passing. Uh, where local uh, local citizens are being asked, do you want to pay more taxes to get this done? And people are saying, yeah, I'm willing to be taxed more. Uh, you know, I realize that local governments are struggling and our services are uh, inadequate and failing because there's not enough money at the local level. So I want to help out and I'm willing to pay more taxes. No, I, I think that's true. I think some people are starting to recognize it because it could be a, you know, a crisis situation. Um, well, you know, another example is that uh, we've had two two cities uh, adopt an income tax in the last year. The first time, first city since 1994, uh, East Lansing and Benton Harbor. Uh, and I, you know, actually, you know, we've been doing you know some income tax studies for the city of Wyoming and for the city of Lowell. So other cities are looking at that. Um, one problem on the property tax is you know there's a, basically a 20 mil limit for for you know most cities. Um, at least on operations, and a lot of cities are already at their limit, so it's it, it, you know kind of tough to increase their millage rates. But but a number of communities are, so you, I think you're right, Bill. What about uh, another big revenue provider uh, everywhere at the state and local level, state after state, and that's sales tax. I, Michigan is pretty tough on allowing local units of government to have any kind of sales tax over and above what the state says should be the sales tax, right? But other states don't have that. No, there's you know, maybe about 30 states that, that where there are local local sales taxes. Um, but, you know, we have the constitutional limit of 6% on the, on the sales tax. So, you know, that, that makes it difficult to, you know, to, to change. You'd have to you know, the state would have to reduce their, their sales tax and allow locals to use it, or we'd have to change change the constitution. So, um, and some say, you know, Maryland has has kind of a, a really ideal situation. They they allow counties to piggyback on the state income tax, you know, up to fifty percent of the state rate, and they raise a, a tremendous amount of money by doing that. Um, so we, you know, we pretty much have a, a broken, you know local financing system in Michigan. And, and I, I think the new governor is going to try to, to address that. Well, bottom line is you don't think a tax cut is really in order at this point at the uh, state level. Hardly, hardly. Maybe no, the, I mean, the opposite. Have, our taxes are already about, uh, along with Indiana, we have the lowest taxes in the, in the Great Lakes region. Um, if, if our taxes were just, you know, at the average of the Great Lakes region, we'd have like $4 billion more in revenue. State and local revenue. Wow. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're really, we're underfunded, and, it, and it's showing up in a lot of areas. Right. Well, listen, Bob Klein, I want to thank you very much. Very keen insight into the state budget and state revenues and the state of Michigan's economy, and particularly uh, the problems of local government trying to make ends meet. Bob Klein of Great Lakes Economic Consulting, LLC. Thank you so much for being on The Political Insider. Thank you, Bill.